The subject matter contained in this presentation is based on biblical principles and designed to give you accurate and authoritative information with regard to the subject matter covered. It is provided with the understanding that neither the presenter nor the broadcaster is engaged to render legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Since your situation is fact-dependent, you may wish to additionally seek the services of an appropriately licensed legal, accounting, real estate, or investment professional. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you shall eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds in the sky. They do not sow or reap. They gather nothing into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are not you more important than they? Can any of you by worrying add a single moment to your lifespan? Why are you anxious about clothes? Learn from the way the wildflowers grow. They do not work or spin, but I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was clothed like one of them. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which grows today and is thrown into the oven tomorrow, will he not much more provide for you, O oh, you of little faith? So do not worry and say, What are we to eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what are we to wear? All these things the pagans seek. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be given you besides. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Sufficient for a day is its own evil. This is Medjinomics with a friend of Medjugorje. We're going to start off on something a little bit different for this broadcast. We just came back out of town this past week, and we got a lot of feedback. Since the release of Big Q, Little Q, a friend of Medjugorje has been invited several places around the country to speak about the book and about Medjugorje, so he fit in a couple of talks in Texas, in El Campo and Bridge City. So we have a lot of feedbacks coming in from those talks, and I'm just going to share one of them before a friend of Medjugorje gets into this Medjugorje program. Friend of Medjugorje, thank you so much for coming to Texas. We need you in Austin, San Antonio, Corpus Christi, Dallas, Waco, Fort Worth, Victoria, and all our cities. The evil is trying to take over Texas. Please come back soon. We must keep Texas in Jesus and Mother Mary's hands. Why does this individual say evil is trying to take over Texas? Because every place that's a light or conservative or God, country, and family, Satan wants that. We see a lot of moves to do that to Alabama. But what would happen in Texas 
and why this person is probably saying evil is trying to take it over is because we chase the dollar. The former governor of Texas, Rick Perry, who's popular, he decided to send a message to California. He made a 30-second ad, and it states, quote, There are plenty of reasons has been named the best state for doing business for eight years running. And it says to look at a website that it names, and it says, And see why our low taxes, sensible regulations, and fair legal systems are just the thing to get your business moving in Texas. He went also to New York, and they gave all kind of low taxes. They gave reasons. They gave tax breaks, and they brought these companies in. But our problem to our culture today, especially in good areas where you go after this, it's like putting a noose around your neck. So the feedback... Joan just read, quote, the evil is trying to take over Texas. Where does it come from? What do you do when you bring in other people's money? Through bringing these new companies from California, New York, places like that, they have a certain mentality. You're not just bringing money back in. You're bringing in the people, what their philosophies are, what they believe in. These people are used to high property taxes. Degradate is sinful. Tolerances that Texans would never be for. And we already see that Houston has a mayor that's an abominable. And they've got several other cities that have abominable mayors. Where does this come from? It comes from people like New York. And they're used to doing these things. But that's the consequences of just seeking money. It's better to be flatline, a stable economy, than try to grow something and bring in exactly what destroyed their states for leaving from, that they bring it and do the same thing. We've seen it here in Alabama. Our property taxes are low. So every time there's an educational tax, these people vote for it. They think it's great because we have such low property taxes. So the evil that comes in is really a consequence of greed and sin. And people would praise Rick Perry. They actually did this. But this always regurgitates back with evil. And so she's referencing that. Why she didn't tie that to it, it birthed from this chasing of the love of money. I'm going to read another feedback. It's not from the Texas Talks, but from a recent broadcast of a friend of Medjugorje. It says, Dear friend of Medjugorje, you call yourself a Catholic website trying to spread Our Lady's messages. I am in New Zealand. Just remember during these times, Our Lady has come for everybody in the world, not just you Americans. You pride yourself to be so special. I would tell you one thing. I don't pride myself as being special. May God bless your efforts, but may you realize that billions of people lie outside of America. And we welcome comments like this because it gives us opportunity for clarification to understand what is the United States of America? What is it in context of the whole world? And of course, this feedback says that our lady has come for everybody in the world. We know that. I know that. I never say that without that understanding. And she added, not just you Americans. You pride yourself to be so special. No, that's a mistake in understanding what's been said. We pride ourselves that we are privileged to live in a country like no other country in the history of the world. What's our position? Humility. And she went on and said, I will tell you one thing. I don't pride myself as being special. We're not special. 
or responsible to whom much is given, much is expected. I wrote about this and they fired the first shot. Because we are a country that is identified as exceptional. So I want to quote what was written. When America's exceptionalism is spoken of, this is not the same thing as nationalism. And that's what this feedback has put us in the context that we're nationalist. That's not what this is about. We understand we're exceptional. Why? I go on to say and write, America's exceptionalism is the recognition that no other nation in the world has been blessed as we have been. America's exceptionalism becomes complete when we understand we must pass this blessing on to other nations of the world. That includes New Zealand. That includes Lithuania, one of the smallest countries in the world. We're not stomping countries. We are showing what God's done with us, and Our Lady has been consecrated over this nation from its beginning, and she even gave a message about this nation because so goes America, goes the world. So they find the first shot continues, being blessed, we are to share this blessing that by our recognition of God's favors, other nations may hope for the same. Is this not why immigrants continuously have come to America in fulfillment of their dreams for freedom? Ask that question there. You ask yourself, what other nation people are tearing down, giving up, doing whatever, even breaking law to get in this country? It's the only nation in the world. They define the exceptionalism why they want to be here. The problem we have with these now coming in, they don't want to be Americans, so they're going to destroy the blessings we have. But it continues in, they find the first shot. Is this not what has kept political prisoners alive while being tortured in prison with hope for their beloved fatherland while also claiming America as their second fatherland? Yes, Americans' exceptionalism is a recognition that God has shed his grace on thee. And I'll stop where I'm quoting because the only other country that come close to it is Israel. But they're still not as blessed as we are, as abundantly. Yes, it was God's people and his nation. But America, since its inception, is something of the tool of God. It continues and they fire the first shot. And we are to spread the blessings of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to all other lands. As patroness of our nation, Our Lady wants us to realize the grace from her son. No nation has been where we are right now. That understood, Our Lady said July 2nd, 2014, I, the mother, the mother of the entire world, call you to set out on the way of humility. Yes, America and all us people has to be humble. But if you say, and you understand, exceptionalism brings that to the heart for the reason we are blessed is because we have been humble. In our wars and our battle, we helped our enemy immediately when we defeated them. You know what some people wanted to do in World War II? Because Germany had caused two World War Wars. They wanted to fill all the airplanes up full of salt and salt all of Germany so it would never rise again. We were against that. But that's what many victors do. We are a humble country, but if we lose this humility, it will not change exceptionalism because we can't change the recognition of our history of how God has shed his grace on us. That's a reality. 
But in this July 2nd, 2014, our lady continues about call you to set out the way of humility. If you, my children, do not become confident of this, then darkness, blindness, rule in your soul. Only humility can heal you. The whole world needs that. Does the United States need the same thing? You bet it does. But we're in our leadership position for the whole wide world, just as the Roman Empire was. But you know what happened to the woman in the empire? It fell inside. It was an inside job. It wasn't from attacks. When we're attacked, we join together. You see Notre Dame? They've been godless for years, decades. Yes, Medjugorje is changing it, but there's so much secularism in there that when Notre Dame burned up Monday, you see what happened? I'll tell you what happened. People knelt down and prayed. People came together. It united the nation. I've told you about the stories walking up the streets of Paris with the rosary in my hand. Even the old women, they look at me and they were startled by me walking down the street with the rosary in my hand. You didn't do that. Nobody was praying. You certainly do it in public. They had become so secularized. The churches had nobody attending mass. Yes, Our Lady of Medjugorje has started that increasing, but this is a premonition of the secrets. The purpose of the secrets is to draw people to Our Lady. On Tuesday night, people came together in a large number, praying and singing on the streets of Paris. They would never have done that before this fire. But this is an omen. Immediately when this came out, I said this. This is an omen from God. You can say the three secrets when they release their omen from God. It's going to bring people to the knees. So this is good. And it's from God. And it's a bad. It's their 9-11. I prayed in this church many times. The crown of thorns is in the back of the church when you walk in. And it's an amazing relic that we have. Somehow a priest got that out. Thank God. And that's one thing our lady wasn't going to let be destroyed. But she did, with God's direction, allow the fire. of something named after her. And what are they doing? They're praying to her by the millions across the world, not just in France. Why? Because of the principle. There's no atheists in the foxholes. So this is a wake-up call. Think about this. The rich history. You realize this church is 850 years old. And also the beams that was in there were up to 300 years old. So that goes back to trees that were growing in 700 A.D. This is a huge thing. This is history. It's a big thing for God to allow that to take place. That's gone. That's ashes. All that wood burn up. So what does that say to us? Our friend from New Zealand, I don't pride myself on being special. No, we aren't as Americans. We're privileged, but this is a special nation, and I stand behind that. And we hear from people from all over the world who is praying for America because they realize when they pray for America, they're praying for themselves. So why is all this important? Because I'm going another direction now, giving you some cognition. I was put with people that were storytellers. One of our neighbors, Philip Sessions, could tell the news in a story way, a fantastic way. Our Lady wants us to have cognition. Why? She says, By fasting and prayer you obtain from the Heavenly Father the cognition of what is natural and holy, divine. And then she adds this, Filled with cognition, under the shelter of my Son and myself, you will be my apostles who will know how to spread the Word of God to all those who do not know of it. We are commissioned as apostles to gain cognition. How do you do that? 
And then you get the message, God wants to test you through your daily chores. But that's not the only way you gain cognition. I was reading a book last night, and in there it says, quote, Great books feed us. They focus our minds and inspire our hearts. And great spiritual books help us to pray. I'm well read. Everybody in the community is well read. You can go to any of the houses here in the evening, and the mothers and the fathers are reading to the kids, or the kids are reading to themselves. There's no TV. There's no cell phone. There's no computer to be on. They read. They love reading. The problem today is one of my main points to say all these things is people are not well read. Our friend from New Zealand, if she was reading, she would never say such a thing. She would understand immediately exceptionalism. And immediately she would understand also the ports of America. We're in a crisis that people do not read. And I'm not talking about your cell phone. I'm not talking about your computer. I'm talking about you have to read. You have to read good books. When that was quoted as spiritual books, just not that. I write a lot of stories. I know a lot of subjects because I have a library and I read a lot of things. And it helps me do what our lady just said, filled with cognition, under the shelter of my son and myself, you will be my apostles. Well, do being filled with cognition, reading, be well read. Don't just listen to the news. You read things on different subjects, whether it's science, whatever it may be. You prayerfully read these things and you understand things that you can say because you're filled with cognition. And she says, you will be my apostle through this, who will know how to spread the word of God to all those who do not know of it. St. Paul's in Athens. He's talking to the Greek philosophers. He's referring to Socrates. He's not just talking about Jesus Christ. Paul was well read. He knew many things. So here's Paul, the super apostle. What does he say to them? In Acts, he says, you Athenians, I see that in every respect, you are very religious. Now, he's not talking about Christianity, Judaism. They got the gods. They got Zeus. They got all these other things. They got Athenia. That's what they call Athenians, the goddess of Athenians, who really, though it's pagan, you could say is a prefigurement of Our Lady. In other words, they had a concept of a woman as a god. Our Lady's not a god, but it made them, when they became Christian, easier for them to understand. Paul continues, for as I walk around looking carefully at your shrines, they're already set up for Christianity. They're already religious people, even though it's paganism and bad things were going in the ceremonies. It continues, as I'm looking carefully at your shrines, I even discovered an altar inscribed to an unknown God. What therefore you unknowingly worship, I proclaim to you. He's referring to Jesus Christ. This was the unknown God. He's standing on the rock. I've been right there, right on the hills where Socrates was buried. So these philosophers had these things. Actually, what they did to Socrates in persecuting him, and actually they killed him, they did the same thing to Paul. So Socrates, around, what, 2,600 years ago, they changed the mentality to Jesus Christ just like to put on a glove. It was a fit. All those centuries through paganism was the religious services and things that changed, yes, but they were able to do that. So that's what our lady is talking about. Filled with cognition, you will be my apostles who will know how to spread the word of God to all those who do not know of it. They didn't know anything. Paul came there and bombarded them nuclearly and won over one individual. And from there, it spread through all of Greece. And we got the Greek Bible and we got these seeds. 
We're in that same position. But I'm not really telling you all these things for that purpose. It's I want to place something of wisdom that you need to be more read. You need to listen to these things. Download them, whatever you have to do. That I learn what I've learned and be able to tell the stories and write different things and bring up examples to convict people so that the word of God to all those who do not know it will understand it. I lay continue on what I'm quoting in that same message about being filled with cognition and you will know how to overcome obstacles that will stand in your way. Paul had an obstacle. He called on the Greek gods, the altars, and then, hey, you got one God in your belief that is an unknown God, and I know him. I met him. He spoke to me. See, he knew Greek mythology, and it was centuries old when he came along. You're not called to just sit there and sit on your cell phones and your computers. You have to read. I'm telling you, if you want to be following a lady, you have to be reading. Reading is one of the most enjoyable things we have in a community. We fight to read. We want to read. And we love to read. And we tell stories. We discuss it. It's nothing better than sit down and talk about a book that you both have read in the community or somebody's explaining something. You learn so many things because the book that's been written by another person, you enter into their life or whatever happened to them or their cognition. And you make their cognition your cognition. And you become broader that you can touch everybody in it. I was raised that way. I know God put me next to people that the stories that was happening in the news, the way they explained it, gave the slant on it, gave us a broad view of everything. I can say now, I was prepared for Medjugorje, just like we talked about the Muslim, Hassan, who said in 1979, people who were born before the Virgin Mary would appear would be prepared for their whole life for her coming. And I feel it, and I see it. I've spoken to you about being well-read, but it's not just that. You have to have other things in your life, experiences. I have had in my life a variety of fields of work. I've been associated with many different trades, which gave me cognition, which gives you different perspectives of many things. Take an example for here. Our children are raised from little kids, seeing logging, being around it, carpentry, making pottery, raising all kinds of animals, brings them also familiar with veterinarian practices, excavation, printing press, bookmaking, and a hundred, hundred other things. Our children, by the time they're 10, 11, 12 years old, they're so familiar with so many trades and how things work and how they come to be that we would put them against any college graduate with the highest degrees. They wouldn't be able to hold a candle to our kids. Am I bragging about that? Yes, I am. Because a lady said, April 20th, 1985, something very profound. She says, you must be humble in what you're proud of. And you should be proud of what you're humble in. We're very proud of our children, how they're raised. And it's because they're well-read and because they're in different trades. They do experiences. And this is completely out of the norm, the way the world's going. So I'll go back to this person in New Zealand, who I'm sure has goodwill, but is ignorant. Because if she read, she would never write that. Our friend before that, about coming to Waco, Fort Worth, Victoria, all our cities, etc., the evil is trying to take over Texas. That person's informed. They're understanding these things. And I understand she was at the talk, and she heard things she never heard before. And a lot of it was stories, like Paul standing there. You're called to be apostle. He's a super apostle. Our lady's calling you for this. 
So we're going to play something to you now to show you these are the kinds of things you need to learn. There's a lot of wisdom out there. In 1965, this was recorded. I learned from this man many things, how to present talks, how to do things. And every day at lunch, like many of you who may be my age, I'm close to 66, and I don't feel that because I feel energized from a lady. And I have a lot of work still yet to do. But this man, his name is Paul Harvey, you've probably heard the name, was filled with wisdom. And I never missed him. And I learned a lot from him, how he told his stories, how he presented news, how he made his points. And this is just a singular example that you can find these kinds of things and you should be listening to these things with your children or just if your husband and wife together, even if your kids are out of the house. You need this wisdom because what Rick Perry did and understand chasing the dollar, what you're about to hear shows when we go that way, we get our base. The consequence is not good. And humility is truth. And keep in mind, all this has been said when this was broadcasted, we had not landed on the moon at that point. We had three or four more years before we landed on the moon. So today we have these difficulties that come up. But listen to this carefully. Tune into it. And after you hear this and what I've just told you, you will see that you have cognition and understanding that you didn't have before you heard this that will do what our lady said to spread the word of God to all those who do not know of it. And that's specifically to this New Zealand woman who doesn't understand what we're saying about America, because this is all about America. Hello, Americans. I'm Paul Harvey, and this is the testing time. We are being tested, you know, you and I, individually and collectively. The test isn't going to be all fun or all easy. But if you'll hear me out, I think you'll agree you wouldn't want it any other way. Such a little while ago, we sat around in our councils of men, chewing our fingernails up past the elbow, worrying about the hideous force which man had loosed on the world when he unharnessed the atom. Now, looking back, we can see that the nuclear weapon was a disguised blessing. We're outnumbered by our potential enemies, seven to one. War with bayonets, we couldn't win. The big bomb was the equalizer, which cut the limitless hordes of Asia down to our size. This awesome weapon stood between us and slavery. And now we can see that an all-wise, almighty entrusted this hideous instrument to our tiny fraction of the Earth's population first. Not for our destruction, but for our deliverance. Our problems are not new ones. What are our problems? Death, war, and taxes. Well, there's nothing new about the first of these, nor about wars, hot or cold. Wars never end. Cain clobbered Abel with about a four-pound club, and men have been fighting ever since. The only difference being that with each succeeding generation, the foot-pounds of destructive energy which one man can deliver increased through the development of the crossbow, the catapult, gunpowder, and the automatic weapons, and the cannon, the airplane, the bomb, the blockbuster. For thousands of years, the line on the chart measuring the foot-pounds of destructive energy which one man can wield goes up in a slow, steady incline until August 1945. And suddenly the line on the graph shoots for the stratosphere, for then there'd been thrust into the hands of man a weapon 400 million times more lethal than anything ever before. This has changed the complexion of war, but wars never end. In the three and a half thousand years of recorded history, fewer than eight percent of those years have been warless ones, and even in this eight percent of the time between, the wars between the wars, 
which we have come to call Cold Wars, went on. Nor is there anything new about these. Quintus Fabius Maximus, the Roman general, was the original Cold War kid, I guess you could say. The Romans nicknamed him the Comptator, meaning one who delays. He marched and countermarched. He turned the battlefield into a parade ground, but he wouldn't fight. Hannibal's getting ulcers, but he isn't getting shot. They say one day old Fabius met the Carthaginians on the field of battle, and he said dramatically, Well, what will it be, war or peace? And they said by that time they were so bush chasing him around didn't make much difference one way or the other. So he said, Then let it be war. And with a dramatic flourish, he flung his toga to the ground and ran as fast as he could in the opposite direction. Now, there's nothing new about wars, hot or cold. Cold wars are waged by the forces of espionage and counter-espionage. And history demonstrates that who wins this war between the wars generally determines who gets the drop on whom when somebody blows the whistle on a shooting match. Now, however, with the major world powers armed with weapons of annihilation, it is possible that for the first time in history the cold war between the wars may be perpetuated. You see, when you and I were boys, we used to resolve our differences as boys with our fists. And generally, you or I would come home with a black eye or a bloody nose, but the difference was resolved. We don't do it that way anymore. Nowadays, though, we try to pretend to our wives that we have some nobler motive. The fact of the matter is that the only reason we don't fight with our fists anymore is that we are so increased in size and physical prowess. We've become so strong in the arms and so soft in the tummy that if we were to wage combat, somebody might get badly hurt. Maybe somebody might get killed. It just wouldn't be worth it. So now we resolve our differences by more moderate means. Americans, it's the judgment of most thinking men that the great nation-states of the world have now approached such a position of physical strength, physical prowess, that none will dare to attack the other. If the initiation of the armed conflict is in itself a suicidal act, then a military standoff might conceivably be perpetuated and doomsday postponed indefinitely. This, however, presupposes that we're going to keep us strong. That's us, spelled U.S., strong in our arms and in our hearts. Now then, what makes a nation strong? Taxes? There's nothing new about those either. The first income tax was paid by Abraham. It was written on a rock by the hand of divinity and handed to Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. And you might want to remember this. It was at the flat rate of 10%. It promised the wrath of God on anybody who tampered with or violated that law. Christ was born in Bethlehem because Joseph was on his way to pay his taxes. Joseph was a relatively well-to-do landowner of the house and lineage of David. Yet the taxes exacted by Caesar Augustus were so exorbitant that he didn't have enough money left over to employ a trusted messenger for the mission, so though his wife was great with child, he made the journey himself. And Christ was born in Bethlehem because Joseph was on his way to pay his taxes. And Christ was born in a manger because there was a housing shortage when he got there. Our problems are not new. At Runnymede, the Magna Carta was handed to King John on the end of a sword denying to royalty the right of unlimited taxation. Yet you know it was for us, the American people, to become the first in recorded history ever voluntarily to surrender our rights to private property. Oh, yes, we did. With an innocent-sounding constitutional amendment, the 16th, which says that Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes 
from whatever source derived, and we forgot to put any limit on the extent to which we could tax ourselves. Conceivably, we could be taxed out of all private property. We could be taxed not 70%, 80%, 90%, but 100%. We could awaken one morning and find that the government owns the farm and the house and the car and has a mortgage on the church, legally. Historically, whenever any nation has taxed its people more than 25% of their national income, initiative was destroyed and that nation was headed for economic eclipse. Well, presently, the American people are being taxed 33% of their total income. History says we'll roll forward on momentum for a little while, but we'd better get some more gas in the tank pretty quick. You see, ours is not the first by George good government to arise on the world stage. There have been several. Rome, Spain, and Greece, and China, and each enjoyed about 150 years at its zenith. That's just about our time in the New World. And then each decayed away. Not one of them was ever destroyed by anybody else's marching legions. Each rotted away morally, socially, culturally, economically, simultaneously. You know, one of the most cruel paradoxes of history is this. Because each was a good government, it bore bountiful fruit. And when it bore bountiful fruit, the people got fat. And when they got fat, they got lazy. And when they got lazy, they began to want to absolve themselves of personal responsibility and turn over to government to do for them things which traditionally they had been doing for themselves. At first, there appears to be nothing wrong asking government to perform some extra service for you, but if you ask government for extra services, government, in order to perform its increasing function, has to get bigger, right? And as government gets bigger, in order to support its increasing size, it has to what? Tax the individual more, so the individual gets littler. And to collect the increased taxes requires more tax collectors, so the government gets bigger in order to pay the additional tax collectors. It has to tax the individual more, so the government gets bigger and the individual gets littler. And the government gets bigger and the individual gets littler until the government is all-powerful. The individual is hardly anything at all. The government is all-powerful. The people are cattle. Now, some believe that the need is for a vigorous strong man to arise on the scene, to regulate and regiment the affairs of men. Yet history tells us there have been several such. Once upon a time, there was a nation great and powerful and good. She was suffering from the aftermath of war, from a depression. And then came upon the scene a leader, an idealist, self-confident, intolerant of criticism. Wisely, he limited his early activities to combating the financial depression. Nobody could argue with that. But in a while... He began to regulate business and establish new rules to govern commerce and finance. Some of them in diametrical disagreement with the God-made laws of supply and demand, but anybody who disagreed with those new rules was promptly fired. The new leader saw that under the old system of free enterprise, landlords prospered, so he levied new taxes to take away their profits and destroy what he called the monopoly of capital. To please laborers, he controlled prices. To win the favor of the farmers, he gave them loans and subsidies. The national debt mounted alarmingly. Whenever anybody tried to tell him that governments, even as people, can go broke when they spend beyond their incomes, he said they just didn't understand deficit finance. Well, what do you say? Did he build on rock or on sand? I say on sand. For you see, this was the story of Emperor Tsu Tung Po, 
who led China to its doom more than a thousand years ago. And I am satisfied with all my heart that if Uncle Sam ever does get whipped, here too, it will have been an inside job. It was internal decay, it was not external attack that destroyed the Roman Empire. Starting about 146 B.C., internal conditions in Rome were characterized by a welter of class wars and conflicts, street brawls, corrupt governors, lack of personal integrity and moral responsibility. About 290 years after Christ, a Roman emperor named Diocletian took over. He really grabbed the bull by the horns. He took over in a period of turmoil and severe depression. The first thing Diocletian did was call in the gold and close the banks and raise the taxes. Diocletian put millions of people on the public payroll, but when this failed to do the job, the country was still in trouble. He asked more personal powers for himself. For a brief while, incidentally, they were standby powers, but then he used them all at once. He froze wages, he froze prices, he froze jobs, he stopped profits, he dictated to the farmer what he should plant, when and how he should sell it, and for how much, and he rationed food. And what happened? The labor market closed down. Incentive was gone. Farm life became dependent on bureaucratic red tape. Exorbitant taxes cost the farmer his land. He kept for himself only a small plot on which he might grow turnips for his family. He lost the rest of it to the state. And without food and with incentive gone, city life stagnated and declined. And Rome passed into what history has recorded as the Dark Ages, lasting a thousand years. Just by turning to the left, the world has gone in circles. A nation would evolve from a monarchy into an oligarchy, from oligarchy to dictatorship, from dictatorship to bureaucracy, from bureaucracy to pure democracy, where finally the people would cry out from the chaos and confusion of the streets, Oh, please, God, give us a king, and God would give them a king. And they'd have a monarchy again and start the whole silly cycle anew. Now either we will profit from the errors of their ways, or it follows as the night the day, our children are going to have to relive the dark ages all over again. We can perpetuate the military standoff. We can delay doomsday indefinitely. We can continue on the high road that's made our United States the powerhouse of the world. But again, it isn't going to be all fun. But then nothing worthwhile ever is. If we intend to stay strong enough to enforce peace, let us determine first the source of our strength. How come after thousands of years of experiment our new nation has come so far so fast? All this in less than 200 years. What is the secret of our success? Well, I think it had to do with a basic American's creed. Perhaps it never passed the pioneer's lips in this form, but if it had, I think he would have said something like this. I believe in my God, in my country, and in myself. I know that sounds like a trite, too simple thing to say, and yet it's a rare man today who will dare to stand up and say, I believe in my God, and my country, and in myself, and in that order. When the early American pioneer first turned his eyes toward the West, there were only Indian trails or traces, as they were called, for him to follow through the wilderness. Do you know today you can roller skate from Miami to Seattle, from San Diego to Plymouth Rock? In this little bitty instant, as historical time is measured, our 7% of the Earth's population 
has come to possess more than half of all the world's good things. How come? Well, sir, when that early pioneer turned his eyes toward the West, he didn't demand that somebody else look after him. He didn't demand a free education. He didn't demand a guaranteed rocking chair at eventide. He didn't demand that somebody else take care of him if he got ill or got old. There was an old-fashioned philosophy in those days that a man was supposed to provide for his own and for his own future. He didn't demand a maximum amount of money for a minimum amount of work. Nor did he expect pay for no work at all. Come to think of it, he didn't demand anything. That hard-handed pioneer just looked out there at the rolling plains stretching away to the tall green mountains and then lifted his eyes to the blue skies and said, Thank you, God. Now I can take it from here. Now that spirit isn't dead in our country. It's dormant. It's been discredited in some circles, driven underground, but it isn't dead. It's just that a few seasons ago, politicians baiting their hooks with free barbecue and trading a Ponzi promise for votes began telling us, We don't want opportunity anymore. We want security. We don't want opportunity, they said. We want security. They said it so often we came to believe them. We wanted security. And they gave us chains, and we were secure. Suddenly, with our constitutional guarantees depleted, with our national character eroding away, with our tax laws penalizing those who dare to prosper, with workers concentrating on how little they can get by with instead of how much they can produce, suddenly we looked overhead one day to discover that the first tin moon in space was a Russian accomplishment, that free men dragging their feet had been outdistanced by slave workers dragging their chains, and we were sore afraid. But as with the nuclear bomb, Perhaps this was a disguised blessing, too. Maybe a dramatic accomplishment by this Cold War adversary was necessary to get us off our dead centers and back to work again. If we can revive in ourselves, then in our youth, something of that basic American's creed, the horizon has never, ever been so limitless. For man stands now on the threshold of his highest adventure of all, his first faltering footsteps into space. Twenty years from today... Half of the products you will be using in your everyday living aren't even in the dictionary yet. We've got it made. If we just keep on keeping on, we've got it made. And if we don't, we will follow those other great nation-states of history into the graveyard of ignominious oblivion. History promises only this for certain. We will get exactly what we deserve. You see, storms are part of the normal climate of life. I've not promised you a horizon of no work and all ease, all honey and no bees, because storms are a part of the normal climate of life. Sometimes the storm takes the shape of an economic catastrophe or a military holocaust or a prolonged drought or a terrifying flood. But storms are a part of the normal year-in, year-out climate of life. We sometimes think our generation has been especially discriminated against. But in every generation, young folks have wondered whether they should pursue an education or take the easiest possible way, whether they should enter the professions or not. 
Young folks have wondered whether they should marry or no. Young marrieds have wondered whether they ought to bring babies into an era of regulation and regimentation. In every hour of history, there have been these questions, the same as we have today, because there have always been storms to, to test men. Americans, a paradise is being prepared somewhere. A perfect place. Don't you see? We've got to prove here we deserve to be there. And if there were perpetual sunshine, there'd be no victory. So storms are a part of the necessary climate of life. This is the shakedown cruise. Here's where we separate the men from the boys. If you and I conceivably could roll out a plush carpet on which our youngsters could walk off into a problem-free future, don't you see it would not be to their best interests for us to do so. They deserve a crack at this test, too. Storms are a part of the normal climate of life. There's an election going on all the time. The Lord votes for you, the devil votes against you, and you cast the deciding vote. Americans, for some reason, are being especially tested because we have been so richly blessed with the bounteous good things which invite sloth. Storms are a part of the normal climate of life. But what happens to a rooster in a storm? He goes over in a corner of the hen house and gets soaking wet and shivers and shakes and develops, what is it, coccidiosis or pip or one of those things roosters gets and dies. But what happens to an eagle in a storm? He sees the dark clouds. He sees them coming. But did you know this? The eagle, when he sees the dark clouds out there on the horizon, takes off and lets the tremendous storm winds and the vanguard of the turbulence actually help buoy him aloft and help him I mean, the winds, the storm winds themselves are lifting the eagle until finally he is soaring above the storm in the sunshine. That's the answer, Americans. Storms are a part of the normal climate of life. We've got to learn to ride them. If, however, you do not share my personal conviction concerning this testing time, I mean, if the gravy train running three sections and the factory whistles... Summoning three shifts are creating too much din for a still, small voice to be heard. Let us nonetheless, with the conscience of reasonable men, preserve and protect and defend this last great green and precious place on earth against all its enemies, foreign and domestic, so help us God. If only because so many people you never knew have broken their hearts to get it and to keep it for you. Once upon a time there was an old hermit in the hills of Tennessee. Always used to be able to answer any questions that the youngsters of the community would bring to his hillside cabin. He was a wise old man. But in every community there is one scalawag. One borderline delinquent, one of those always getting himself into trouble, always leading others astray. And there was one such in this community. And one day he gathered his cohorts about him. He says, fellas, I have an idea how we're going to fox that old man up on the mountain. He thinks he's so smart. I'm going to catch me a bird. And I'm going to hold it in my cupped hands. And I'm going up to his cabin. And I'll say, what have I here, old man? He'll guess right. He always does. He'll say it's a bird. But then I'm going to say, is it alive or is it dead? If he says it's dead, I'll let it fly away and prove him wrong. If he says it's alive, before I show it to him, I'll crush it to death. 
Well, youngsters caught a small bird and went up to the hillside cabin, rapped on the door. The old man came to the door. The lad said, What have I here, old man? The old hermit said, Why, it appears to me it's a bird you've caught there, boy. And the lad, glancing at his friends out of the corners of his flashing eyes, said, Yes, but is it alive or is it dead? And the wise old man of the mountain said, It is as you will, my son. That is the sum of it, Americans. We have here captured the elusive eagle of individual liberty. Now you can love it and feed it and watch it fly, or neglect it and starve it, and it'll die. It is as you will. The future is in your hands. What you just heard is wisdom. Somebody who's well-read, who knows how to tell and convey that wisdom, that you can digest it, change your mentalities and your ideals, such as the mentality in this woman from New Zealand. The Roman Empire fell internally. The family attacked becomes stronger. The strife internally destroys it. It's the same for a nation. Sunday, France was not united. Monday, France was united. Reflect on that on your future. Harvey talked about 3,500 years. Only 8% of that time was in peace, and in that time between the wars was Cold Wars. That says something. He made the point the atomic bomb has given us longer periods between wars than we've ever had in history. So listen to this. We understand our latest messages better because we have cognition. We are well read. We broaden our mentalities. We hear wisdom. I want you to prove this to yourself. You listen to this five times over the next three or four or five days of what Paul Harvey said. And you'll hear things and you will understand things you didn't before. Because it's the message of Our Lady. If you listen to it through the template of her messages, you will understand her messages. And I'm not just challenging you that. You must do this, and you'll be shocked at what you'll hear and what you will learn. I was surrounded by men who taught me many things. Reading polished what these men gave me. Life experiences crowned it. Prayer and fasting has spread it from what used to be a cow pasture. A cow pasture now that is sacred holy ground. No less than where Moses treaded on Mount Horb. So all this gives you the cognition and wisdom to see a message our lady is giving five days before the thousand-year millennium ends. And she says this, This is the time of grace. Through your yes for peace and your decision for God, a new possibility of peace is opened. Before the next sentence of Our Lady, I read, Keep in mind, 8% out of 3,500 years, there was no wars. A new possibility for peace is opened. Only, Our Lady says, only in this way, this century. What century? Five days later, the year 2000. She says, this century will be for you 
a time of peace and well-being. We're seeing something that's never happened in history. A hundred years of peace. And that doesn't necessarily mean peace and war. It means being reconciled with God and being blessed. Did it happen? No. Was it always talking about it's going to happen that day, January 1st, 2000? No. But something shook up. Something started changing October 13th, 2017. Our lady's leading us to that. And she's leading the entire world to be reconciled with this creator and a peace in a way that we've never seen before. But she said in this message, only if you say yes, only in this way would this happen. And just like in the bird story, it said, boy, it is your will. What you are hearing is wisdom of life experiences refined by the purifying fire of tribulation and suffering. A friend of Medjugorje will conclude today's Medjinomics broadcast shortly. But first, it is important that we share with you the need to get these words out to as many people as possible. Field Angels our committed monthly supporters allow us to make these broadcasts available worldwide. Thank you for your support. But we have a great need. We need 20,000 more field angels to ensure that these broadcasts and many other materials are brought to every home. We are asking for a small and unburdened amount of just $5 a month. This means that for everyone who signs up at $5 or more, helps to reach the goal of 20,000 new people. A $10 monthly donation covers two people. The average monthly donation is $25 a month, which would cover five people toward the goal of 20,000. We do not ask you to merely consider doing this. Many know, with the state of the world, that the time is short to reach as many people as we can. Our Lady needs your help and our mission work changes hearts through God's grace. Sign up as a field angel. Contact Caritas in the U.S. at 205-672-2000. Outside the United States, dial 001-205-672-2000. Or you can visit medj.com, spelled M-E-J dot com, and click on Donate. For everyone who signs up as a field angel, a friend of Medjugorje will gladly share with you one free CD of today's broadcast. When signing up as a field angel and making your generous tax-deductible gift, please mention today's broadcast and the CD number CD2445MJ. Thank you. Now, here is a friend of Medjugorje to conclude today's broadcast. Everything is in our hands. This is a time of grace. Through your yes for peace and your decision for God, a new possibility for peace is open. Only in this way this century will be, will be for you a time of peace and well-being. Put little newborn Jesus in the first place in your life and he will lead you on this way of salvation. 
I'm telling you, you have to read. If you don't read, you will not have the cognition. You can't get it through the media. You can't get it through the education system. You have to choose to broaden your mentality, which has been narrowed by the educational system and the voices that we are not to believe any longer. Wish you our lady. We love you. Goodbye. The subject matter contained in this presentation is based on biblical principles and designed to give you accurate and authoritative information with regard to the subject matter covered. It is provided with the understanding that neither the presenter nor the broadcaster is engaged to render legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Since your situation is fact-dependent, you may wish to additionally seek the services of an appropriately licensed legal, accounting, real estate, or investment professional. This ends the Medjinomics broadcast with a friend of Medjugorje. These broadcasts are available as CDs, which are sent directly to your doorstep on a monthly subscription. For information, contact Caritas in the U.S. at 205-672-2000.